I, I was exposed that during that gap year for the first time to meaningful study of Hasidic literature with Rabbi Pesach Schindler. And suddenly I felt like, wow, okay, I'm home. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Also, want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, JLTV, Jewish Life Television Network. JLTV is a 24-7 cable and satellite television network delivering news, history, and entertainment. JLTV brings together the greatest voices from around the country, across the world, and from the Holy Land. Go to jltv.tv for stories that inspire. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am so excited to welcome a dear friend and mentor of mine. Uh, you're going to get so much out of this interview. I hope that you will stay until the end. And without further ado, let me introduce the man properly. As senior core faculty at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, Rabbi Sam Feinsmith directs the clergy leadership program and serves on the faculty of Yesod, Foundations for Deepening Jewish Mindfulness Meditation. He is passionate about practicing and teaching Jewishly grounded mindfulness meditation and teaching Hasidic text through a mindfulness lens, making these texts accessible to spiritual seekers who don't have the knowledge or skill to access them on their own. Before joining the faculty of IJS in 2016, he taught Judaic studies at Chicagoland Jewish High School, Illinois, and the Heschel School in New York, where he spearheaded initiatives to foster teen spirituality and mindfulness as foundations for lifelong, thriving, and love of Jewish learning. He is a co-founder of Orot, Center for New Jewish Learning, a hub for com- contemplative Jewish learning and living. Committed to wedding inner work with the work of Tikkun Olam, he served as Kol Tzedek Fellow for American Jewish World Service, volunteering in Cambodia with their volunteer corps. Sam lives in Evanston, Illinois, with his wife, Sarah Bess, daughter, Elanit, and their pet, Bunny Margaret. So ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Rabbi Sam Feinsmith. Oh, let's go. Oh, water in the back. Yes, that's how we do it over here. Yes, welcome. Let's go. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, 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 okay. okay. Rabbi Sam, welcome. How are you today? So I'm, uh, I'm doing well, actually. The smoke has uh, finally cleared a little bit over here in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, we have a beautiful sunny day. Oh, Baruch Hashem. Yes, we went through that over here in California, and it is, it is uh, eye-opening for sure. So let's get right into your story for my audience that isn't familiar with you. Talk a little bit about your growing up childhood and specifically Jewish I was born in Denver, Colorado, um, and uh, from a young age, uh, was exposed to um, the teachings of Rabbi Shlomi Torsky. My father was a a devotee of his. My father was a composer and a musician, uh, classically trained. He played with the Denver Symphony Orchestra and was to spend Shabbat every week at Rabbi Torsky's shtibel, his little prayer community. Mm. And uh, um, 
when I was really little, my dad composed a symphony called Isaiah. In preparation for that composition, he studied with Rabbi Tversky for a year. <clears throat> I remember that my dad, at one point when he was composing that, that symphony, he kind of disappeared into his study for about a month. Didn't eat very much, didn't drink very much, and I wasn't really allowed in. Only did I find out later on that when he was composing the third movement, that he was having some sort of a mystical experience, really channeling uh, some sort of uh, a creative process that came from a source that he considers to be not of his own making. Uh, so I had that kind of framework in, my, in the background of, of my childhood. Also went to uh, Orthodox day schools as a kid. And then when I was five, my family made Aliyah. Uh, my father was invited to play with the Ezra Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, he was a classical bassoonist. And we lived in Israel for close to 10 years, and there I attended religious public schools, and uh, in middle school I went to a Bnei Akiva uh, branch of one of their uh, yeshiva uh, middle schools. So I had a fairly kind of traditional Jewish education, steeped in, you know, study of Torah, Mishnah, Talmud, um, Jewish law, halakha, and so on and so forth. Uh, but, you know, somewhat moderate as well, because my dad uh, being a musician and a spiritual seeker was also very uh, always interested in bringing home people from the orchestra who weren't Jewish. And his closest friend was an African American gentleman named Sam Gill, who was a string bassist in the Denver Symphony. He used to come to our Seder every year. Mm. My dad also um, was involved with the Lakota Sioux community in the Rosebud Reservation in the Dakotas. Uh, the chief there, Henry Krodog, was my dad's uh, godfather. So I had that kind of heritage as well. In addition to that, my dad was interested in Eastern religions. He wasn't a meditator per se, but he had a lot of books on the shelf that you know were about uh, Eastern traditions and uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. So I had kind of this Orthodox upbringing, but in a very kind of open-minded sort of milieu. And uh, that was basically my childhood. When I was about 14, we, we came back from Israel and my parents enrolled me in a yeshiva high school in Northern New Jersey continued down that path really until the end of high school, you know, fairly traditional modern Orthodox upbringing uh, and in Israel, kind of a religious Zionist upbringing. That's my childhood. Then I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary and uh, um, participated in their joint program with Columbia University as an undergraduate. And then everything changed. <laughs> I'm happy to tell you more about that. Okay. Can we pause for a moment? You said yeah. so, so many amazing, gold, what I call golden nuggets in that opening, but you said your dad's godfather was the Indian chief of the Lakota Sioux. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, of the Rosebud Reservation, yeah. Okay, how does that happen exactly? Because I know... <laughs> it's, a great story. it's a great story, actually. Okay. Um, so I come from a long line of musicians going back to the 1750s, actually. You've had Kazanim, you know, cantors and mm -hmm. uh, classical musicians, uh, really going back a long ways. I, I'm a musician, but less formally trained. Anyway, my grandfather, my dad's father, Sam Feinsmith, who shares my name, for whom I'm named, uh, was a, a clarinetist. And uh, actually, when he was a kid in, uh, in Belarus, there was a pogrom. And his mother and his sister were, were murdered. To make money, uh, he played clarinet in the, in the circus. Ultimately, he was able to uh, earn enough money to afford passage to the United States. And uh, he became a very sought-after clarinetist and uh, saxophonist. And uh, during the Depression era, while none of his relatives had work, he was playing vaudeville shows mm -hmm. and playing with 
the New York Philharmonic, and he was able to really support the whole family because of that. Long story short, he was playing a vaudeville show back in the day in New York, and I don't know all of the circumstances and you know how this all happened, but the vaudeville show featured a bunch of Native Americans mm-hmm. uh, performing, I think, some of their traditional dances. My dad invited one of them, who was Henry Crowdog, home for Shabbat dinner. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my dad was just a kid. My dad was very young. But he remembered having this Native American gentleman at his Shabbat table. And years later, my dad was playing a Broadway show in New York as an adult. And he comes out after the show, and he's walking around the, you know, the theater district. And he sees someone who looks very, very familiar, he walks up to him and introduces himself and they start talking and it's Henry Crowdog. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, my dad remembered him. He remembered my dad and uh, they became friends. And my, Henry invited my dad out to the reservation a bunch of times. And my dad spent time out there and Henry came to my parents' wedding in full headdress uh, up in the mountains, you know, um, near Blackhawk, Colorado. Um, you know, throughout my childhood, my dad always used to buy me books of, uh, of Lakota tales Mm-hmm. folk tales and uh, origin stories and uh, yeah there were pictures of Henry all over our house and handmade flutes and peace pipes that he had made for my dad they were very close unfortunately I never met him myself I met his son and his grandchildren when mm-hmm. I was a kid that was a really important part of my dad's life amazing and I noticed that in our retreat whenever you would mention you're from Evanston Illinois you said something else talk about that for a second yeah, you know, it's become really important to me um, to uh, acknowledge why all of us in America who really, uh, you know, live on, on essentially, you know, settled or, or stolen land mm. um, and to acknowledge the first peoples who were here before us and the uh, tremendous wisdom uh, and spirituality that they, you know, had uh, lived by for, you know, tens of thousands of years before uh, any white folks arrived here from Europe. You know, I'd say that when when I was a kid in Israel, when we moved away from Denver, I kind of lost consciousness a little bit of, of my dad's relationship with Henry Crowdog and that whole legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in the last number of years, I've been trying to kind of reclaim that. Part of that practice has been to really try and be consistent about offering a land acknowledgement, you know, whenever I teach. Not only because it's important to, I think, acknowledge pain and the hurt and the suffering that uh, the Europeans inflicted upon indigenous people here and continue to do through oppressive system structures and and laws. Uh, But also because I think that um, one of the beautiful things for me about uh, being in conversation with indigenous people here is that it's helped me to begin to uh, reclaim the indigenous roots of Judaism, which are so, you know, beautiful and powerful. And that kind of got swept under the rug during all of those years that we were, you know, in exile. And there's still kind of vestiges of those practices uh, in our tradition, but they're kind of a little bit latent. And there's a whole wonderful movement now in the Jewish community, in large part, really kind of, I think, spearheaded by young folks and, you know, members of the Kohenet Institute, alumni of the Co- and, and uh, students in the Kohenet Institute and uh, the psychedelics movement to really kind of reclaim Jewish indigenous practices. Absolutely. I'm friends with the founder of Wilderness Torah out here on the West Coast. So. Yeah, Zella Golden. Yeah. yeah. A lot of time together. So beautiful. Okay. So now, uh, thank you for that little vignette. I love the, the connection. And and so, but specifically, Evanston, Illinois, you said something about the land of the three fires, if I remember. Yeah, that. the Council of the Three Fires, the Potawatomi, Odawa, and Ojibwe. 
Okay. Yeah, they actually inhabited kind of the whole um, kind of Great Lakes region mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, had very and continue to have very, very deep roots in this place, you know, uh, take inspiration in that, you know, seek to do whatever I can as well to, um, you know, champion causes to really kind of make reparations to the indigenous community here, you know, all over the country. Beautiful. Okay, so now let's bridge the the timeline between when you were fourteen and then entering into yeshiva for your smicha. Yeah, thanks. Actually, I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary as an undergrad. There was a joint program with Columbia. Mm -hmm. Up until that point, I had believed that the Torah was, you know, God's direct word relayed through Moses. That Jewish law was the, the correct interpretation of of the Torah by which you know, the Jewish people should live. I wasn't always observant, uh, kind of rebelled a little bit when I was 17, 18, 19, so on and so forth, you know, um, mostly because I was curious and some of my friends weren't totally observant. So, you know, I wasn't 100% Sabbath observant and I didn't keep kosher 100%, but I still at the time really believed that I was doing something that was out of step, you know, with divine will and that there would be some sort of you know, accounting, but I was young and, you know, not so worried about that at the time. And then I went to, uh, as I said, this joint program between JTS and Columbia. And for the first time in my life, I studied biblical criticism and modern Jewish philosophy and uh, all of my beliefs, my whole kind of belief system just kind of crumbled, you know, and uh, I kind of fell into this very kind of adversarial relationship with Judaism for a while, where I felt like uh, the rabbis, you know, had really kind of pulled the veil over our eyes. Mm. and uh, kind of fed us a lie, you know, because the, the archaeological record uh, seems to indicate, you know, as does uh, biblical criticism, you know, that the Torah, uh, A, is not a uniform document, right? And B, you know, that it was created by different schools of people who had different kind of religious agendas and orientations and used different language for talking about God and whose religious lives were centered on different sort of dimensions of what we now know as contemporary Judaism. You know, so uh, that happened, and it was a really difficult time for me, actually, really difficult. And I didn't have a really good safety net to catch me because, um, you know, I think most of the other students at the Jewish Theological Seminary had gone to Camp Ramah and mm -hmm. had grown up in a conservative milieu where these ideas and concepts were familiar to them. Right? But I was one of the few Orthodox kids, ex-Yeshiva kid, you know, who came into this environment and uh, felt very isolated. Mm. You know, so actually, I could have gone into a kind of nihilistic place, but I didn't. I was very lucky because I really, really wanted some sort of a, a system of meaning. And I wanted something that would put me directly in touch with with the truth. You know, I wanted to be in relationship with big questions about absolute truth. So I actually enrolled in the uh, East Asian, sorry, in the religion department at Columbia University with a focus on East Asian religions. Uh, which is where I was first exposed to Buddhism, uh, ended up studying Japanese religion. Um, and immediately upon, you know, sitting in upon my first kind of intro to Buddhism course, I, I just felt like, wow, you know, there's something here that's really compelling, you know, something that really resonates with me mm -hmm. as being true about the human experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, that made me want to learn more. At the time, I, I wasn't into meditation. I wasn't practicing. I wasn't interested in becoming a practicing Buddhist. But I was I was still exploring. So I also turned to psychedelics uh, at the time, um, and you know I had some very interesting kind of mind opening, mind altering experiences that introduced me to unitive states of consciousness, 
Mm-hmm. So again, I wasn't meditating at the time. I wasn't actually practicing Judaism uh, or any other religion. Uh, and I was also exposed to a whole kind of literature about mysticism um, as part of my studies at Columbia. Ended up writing my honors thesis, um, both for the Jewish Theological Seminary and Columbia on magic and the occult in the Babylonian Talmud. And I ended up taking some Kabbalah courses my junior and senior year with uh, Dr. Shaul Magid. Mm-hmm. And uh, those also opened me to some new possibilities within uh, the Jewish tradition that were less dogmatic and more about kind of direct experience of the divine mm-hmm. and a whole kind of spiritual language, right? We're talking about the map of the inner life. So all of that was really, you know, eye-opening for me, but I was still kind of drifting and hadn't really found a home base. Um, and then uh, um, I took a year, a gap year, what was to be a gap year and ended up being six months to study at the conservative yeshiva in Israel because, you know, when I threw Judaism off of my shoulders freshman year of college, I thought I knew a lot about Judaism. <laughs> I thought I knew everything about Judaism. I had that kind of brazen kind of you know, adolescent mentality. Uh, and then, you know, the more I studied, the more I realized, actually, there's more to this tradition than, than meets the eye. And, and, uh, and so I decided to enroll in yeshiva for the year in Israel. And that's when I first was exposed in a meaningful way, because I'd been exposed before, as I said, as a child to Hasidic teachings, you know, the Shabbat experience at a Hasidic table. And uh, my dad was a, a devotee of Rabbi Tversky, um, who comes from a very prominent Hasidic line going all the way back to Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, you know, one of the Baal Shem Tov's disciples. And I studied a little bit of Hasidism my freshman year with the local Chabad rabbi, but we were studying Tanya, which is kind of the central teaching of, of the Chabad tradition. And it's very, um, it's very chauvinistic, you know, very triumphalist, really kind of spiritualizes the kind of um, sense that the Jewish soul is on a higher plane than the uh, non-Jewish soul. And I couldn't really swallow that based on my experiences that I had as a kid, you know, of being exposed to all these different wonderful people and traditions. So anyway, long story short, you know, I I was exposed that during that gap year for the first time to meaningful study of Hasidic literature with Rabbi Pesach Schindler. And suddenly I felt like, wow, okay, I'm home. I'm home, you know. And things kind of snowballed from there. I ended up enrolling in the Jewish Theological Seminary for rabbinical school when I came back. Spent a year and a half studying there and found it to be very intellectually stimulating, but spiritually kind of desiccated and dry. In Israel? Sorry, where were you studying for your The Jewish Theological Seminary in the rabbinical program. Uh Um, And then I ended up transferring to YCT rabbinical school, Yeshiva Chovevei Torah, which is a progressive Orthodox school. Uh, that was about 10 blocks south of the Jewish Theological Seminary at the time. I was meeting in the basement of a, uh, of a synagogue. Uh, it was a kind of really, kind of like a mom and pop operation when I first started. I entered the second class. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, spiritual and religious passion there um, and kind of a real vision. And um, I continued studying Hasidism there. And then at some point, um, uh, my now close friend, Rabbi David Ingber, enrolled. Mm. I think he was one year my junior there. Mm. You know, and he um, he was uh, more of a spiritual seeker than most and had a lot of experience with Eastern practice mm. and astrology and yoga and gyrotonics and those kinds of things. And he eventually joined the intentional community up at Elah Chaim, mm-hmm. um, 
the Jewish Retreat Center that used to be up in Accord, New York, and now is at Isabella Friedman Retreat Center. And I started going with him on retreats there. Uh, first study, mostly study retreats, um, where I was studying Kabbalah with Danny Matt, or, you know, storytelling, spiritual storytelling with Rabbi Arthur Waskow as a kind of liberatory practice. And then eventually I sat, you know, some silent retreats there. And, uh, you know, that's when things really began to like become very, very interesting mm -hmm. and deep and rich. And, you know, the way that uh, I described my experience on my first silent retreat when I came back to my rabbinical school, because one of my teachers asked me, you know, how, how was it? You know, mm. I said, look, my whole life, I've been reciting this prayer, Elohaina Shamashana Natata Bitehorahi, right? This soul, God, that you place inside of me is pure, right? Immutably pure, pristine, you know, untouched by all of the, the, the difficulty, the challenges in our lives. So Tim, for the first time in my life, I had a direct experience of that. Mm, beautiful. And how old were you when you had that first retreat? Because that was a summer. Yeah, I was probably about, I guess I was about, probably about 24 or 25. Okay, amazing. Okay, let me ask you a question. So there's so much to unpack there and we'll do some references below for people that aren't familiar with some of the references and the rabbis and things that you mentioned and Elad Chaim, et cetera. So you grew up Orthodox. Okay? Yeah. You, you lived in Israel. Yeah. You were at Yeshiva. You were steeped in, steeped in Shabbos. You had this amazing multicultural Shabbos experience that was really rooted in spirituality. And yet you get to this point in your life where you feel like, correct me if I'm wrong here, you're not finding the, what I call the sauce, the actual spiritual connection to this unified field, which you may have accessed for the first time through psychedelics, but we access it many other ways. How is that possible? You didn't have that experience in such a, such a steeped Jewish upbringing. That's my question. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. You know, I saw glimmers of it again in my dad's mystical experience. You know, right. uh, um, and what it was like to sit around Rabbi Torsky's table as a kid. You know, and certainly a lot of my teachers, especially in Israel, were it's clear that they were very, very deep into their prayer, and also very ethically refined people. You mm -hmm. know. Yeah, I remember this one teacher uh, who was my seventh grade Talmud teacher, mm -hmm. um, Rabbi Yaakovi. And it was clear that he was like a different kind of person, you know, mm -hmm. like just very refined spiritually and ethically. And he talked to us a little bit about spiritual cultivation. But I would say that for the most part, right, for the most part, the experience of my Judaism was fairly intellectual. Mm. And worse than that, when I started to have some doubts my freshman year of college, I actually went to a yeshiva in Israel for winter break. Mm -hmm. And some of my friends from high school were studying there. And I engaged the rabbi there around some difficult kind of theological questions. And he just couldn't go there with me, right? It's like there was a sense that like, you know, there are certain orthodoxies and dogmas that we just take on faith and we don't question them. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was both the kind of head-centered nature of the Judaism with which I was raised, especially in high school. Mm -hmm. And then also the fact that like, there really wasn't the capacity for genuine, open intellectual curiosity and inquiry, you mm -hmm. know? So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot more to say about that, but it's, it's fascinating to me when I, when I meet people so learned and so steeped and, 
and yet they're craving things that you know children do naturally without any garment they just they're they, they naturally do this right and you know myself as a spiritual seeker i remember praying as a kid and meditating and just walking in the forest and just feeling that unity that you know 20 years later i had a whole framework around so meditation is entering your life. You're 24, 25, right? Now, do you have a regular practice? You're just kind of dipping in, dipping out. Did you feel really like this is your path or this is just part of your journey? Yeah, at first I was curious mostly because when I lived in uh, college with my friend, uh, Rabbi David Almog, um, he was like me. He was an ex-yeshiva kid, you know, yeshiva high school kid who became disaffected. And he was actually really interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And in his room at the Jewish Theological Seminary, he had a little altar with like water bowls and a picture of the Dalai Lama and he would burn incense and he would sit there cross-legged and meditate, you know? And we were always like, oh, that's that's Dave's thing. You know, he's kind of, he's unusual, you know? But um, when I started being interested in kind of deeper spirituality, he he showed me a couple of things and that was really interesting. And I started kind of just exploring within myself how kind of his specific orientation to meditation and prayer was kind of landing inside of me. But then um, before I even ever went up to Eilat Chaim with David Ingber, I was really fortunate because our rabbinical school was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And just a couple blocks away, like literally like four or five blocks away, was a Pure Land, a Japanese Pure Land a Buddhism temple. Mm. It's actually a really cool building. They had a statue, a huge bronze statue of Shinran. Mm-hmm. Who is that for people? Shinran was uh, essential in, uh, uh, I believe, bringing Buddhism from China to uh, to Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's revered as one of kind of the the great, you know, the great Japanese Buddhist saints. Uh, actually, there was a little plaque underneath the, the bust of Shinran that said that it was at the epicenter of Hiroshima. And it's the only thing that survived. And they brought it over and it was sitting, you know, kind of in a very kind of like formidable, prominent place, you know, um, in front of this Pure Land temple. Very powerful. But uh, the New York Insight community used to lead more kind of Theravadan flavored meditation sessions every Tuesday night there. You know, someone would come and give a little teaching maybe a short reading, and then we would sit for 45 minutes, and then we would walk for a little bit, and then we'd have an opportunity to come back and kind of share out about our experience. Mm -hmm. And so I started going once a week with a couple of the guys from my rabbinical school, including David Ingber. You know, it was really, it was really beautiful to experience that spiritual discipline. It was hard, but I'm generally a good rule follower. (laughs) even though I have a little bit of a, a kind of like a holy kind of irreverent quality to myself, you know, because yeah. I'm an iconoclast, but, but I'm also a rule follower kind of by, by my nature and conditioning. So, so I would just sit there dutifully and like really, you know, for 45 minutes, be really still. And my knees would be like killing me and my back would be killing me, but I just keep coming back again and again to the breath, you know, and uh, like the most, I'm sure a lot of people out there who meditate can relate to this. Like the most beautiful moment would be when the facilitator would say, you know, where are you? Like 20 minutes in, I'd be like, oh, I know pieces of something else to pay attention to. <laughs> you know, uh, but I would sit there dutifully and and then I would do the walking meditation. And 
you know, there's a real sense of like a little sangha there, you know, and um, can you translate sangha for the audience? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's the orthodox translation and a kind of more kind of American popular translation, right? The orthodox translation of a sangha is a community of, of, of monks and nuns who are working toward mm -hmm. enlightenment, right? Following the teachings of the Buddha uh, and working toward full enlightenment. Um, the more kind of American popular sense of it is really a community of, of practice that meditates together and comes together on a regular basis mm -hmm. for spiritual meditation and communion. I'd say that I didn't fully get what it was all about. It, I would I would be very kind of relaxed and calm afterwards. I would feel a little bit more like my mind was more spacious and open and vivid, you know. But then when things really kind of took off was uh, when I was about 26 or so, and uh, I'd had chronic sinus infections from the time I was about 19, mm. and they were getting worse and worse and worse. And I'd had a couple of operations that were supposed to make it better, and they didn't really work. And then I woke up one morning when I was about 26, maybe 27, and it felt like someone was hitting me between the eyes with a sledgehammer every couple of seconds. And if someone were to whisper in my ear, because I tried this actually, you know, it sent just waves of pain down, like all the way down to my feet. I was barely even able to play guitar because I'm a guitar player because the noise, you know, the sound was just so jarring. It was really the most excruciating experience I ever had. And this happened for, you know, it was going on for months and I, I had to have emergency surgery and, you know, they were able to restore drainage because basically there was like no drainage and just like infection was building up and making its way into my skull bone. So I was pretty sick. and. Um, at the time, uh, I would try to meditate for like 20 minutes before Shabbat to bring in Shabbat in a kind of mindful way. And then on Sunday morning, I would sit for like 20 minutes in meditation, you know, but that's that's basically what I was doing. And then I was going to these New York insight sits every Tuesday night and studying in rabbinical school at the same time. You know? mm -hmm. I'm sitting there one Sunday morning and unbeknownst to me, what I'd been training in the whole time I'd been going and watching my breath and noticing the mind wandering and being it with a lot of love and compassion and acceptance and coming back. I'd just been training and kind of like meeting my experience with unconditional love and acceptance, you know? So I'm sitting there this one morning and the, the pain is just, it's so intense, you know? And before that morning, you know, I'd never in my life invited pain in, you know, and befriended pain. It was always something to get rid of, you know, you take a pill, you, you know, you do something, you get rid of the pain, you look away, you distract yourself, you know? And I just felt that like the more I was trying to escape and avoid and not look at the pain, the more intense it was getting, the more tight it was becoming, kind of the more oppressive it was becoming. There was this whole added layer of mental suffering on top of the physical suffering. That one morning, for some reason, you know, maybe, you know, divine providence, who knows, maybe you know, it was just like the multiple, the kind of um, aggregate effect of, of my practice, which had been going on for a number of months. I'm sitting there and, and I'm just feeling this horrible, like tight you know, tension in my head. And I turn toward it for the first time in my life. And I say, okay, I have every reason to believe that you're going to be sticking around for a while. Right? So as long as you're going to be here, I invite you in to be my teacher. And uh, I don't know, you know, at 26, how I had the wisdom to do that. But somehow I did. And, uh, and uh, what happened was that the pain did not disappear. But suddenly it was pulsing in and out instead of being this kind of like 
solid thing. And it would like grip me and release me and grip me and release me. And not only that, but it was floating in like limitless space, just had like wide berth, you know? And so it wasn't really so afflictive anymore. And that was my first experience of the power of practice to um, help me meet difficulty and unpleasant experiences in my life, pretty intense unpleasant experiences in my life. There was some degree of like equanimity and balance and like lightness of heart. It's like uh, the Dalai Lama teaches, you know, that pain is an option, but uh, suffering is, sorry, pain is, is inevitable, but suffering is a, is, a, is a choice, right? And I didn't know that teaching at the time, but I would say that that was my first lived experience of that teaching, you know, in action. Um, and that just got me like much more interested in going deeper and deeper and deeper and going on more retreats and, you know, getting more consistent in my practice over time and so on. I love it. And if I may um, extract a, a tiny teaching from the, the six days we just spent together, which was immediately applicable, which they were talking about pain and how you could be experiencing pain in you know, your knee or your back when you're sitting for such a long period of time. And, but that there's a lot of, you can envision space around that and it's not constant and that neither is really anything, you know, or any part of your body, it's not fixed. And that immediately worked for me. So, you know, definitely consult your local rabbi or just email Sam about more specifics around that. But I can say that what you're talking about, you were able to teach just last week and I was able to use, and it actually is highly effective. So it's a nice coming full circle of your story. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Saul. I'm really delighted to know that that teaching was helpful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, in, in terms of the arc of the timeline, we're around 26, 27, and then you did found something called Orot, but I'm not sure what the timeline was between then and, and Orot. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, happy to talk about that. So. Basically, um, I finished rabbinical school in 05. I was about, I think, 28, roughly. Um, and I was going on these retreats at El Um And then uh, I worked as a, a Judaic studies teacher. That was my first job out of rabbinical school at the high school level mm-hmm. in New York at the Abraham Joshua Heschel School, where I led a contemplative minion for the 11th and 12th graders it would have been for the whole school but the first year we offered it there were i think 86 registrants <laughs> we had to make a choice about you know tapping it and uh you know making it available only to the 11th and 12th graders that was like the most awesome experience because basically like the school was new things were kind of really emergent mm. and the director of my department was like Oh, you want to create a meditation minion for the kids? Do it and do whatever you want. The only thing that you need to do is say Shema and the Amidah every day. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, great. <laughs> so five days a week, you know, <laughs> for years, really, I think I was there for, was it five or six years? Mm-hmm. You know, I just had this wonderful kind of laboratory where I could try things out and get feedback from the kids. And it's where I kind of really began to kind of, refine my craft as a teacher of the practice. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, then I met my wife in 2008 uh, in New York City. She was also teaching high school, but to 
uh, black and brown kids at an inner city school in the Bronx. After getting married, we decided to uh, travel and volunteer in Asia for 10 months. That was our honeymoon. We, were, we volunteered in Cambodia at a youth uh, development organization. Also did a couple of retreats uh, in India. I sat one Goenka retreat there. Um, Goenka Vipassana retreat. Goenka was, you know, a wonderful teacher of a particular school of, of Vipassana, you know, in the Theravadan uh, tradition, really coming out of uh, um, Burma. And then my wife and I together sat an intro to Tibetan Buddhism retreat there as well at the Tushita Center in Dharamsala, outside of Dharamsala, you know, where the Tibetan government is in exile. And on that retreat, um, I just had like an upwelling of really clear insight, what I would call kind of like kishka or, you know, intuitive wisdom. <laughs> uh, you know, in the West, we know how to know with our heads, but we don't know a lot about how to cultivate intuitive wisdom. But I got quiet and settled and present enough on that retreat that just there was a kind of like communication that welled up from inside of me, from deep inside of me. And there, the voice basically said like, you, you're, you're, your deployment in this world, right? Your mission in this world is to teach contemplative practice. Wow. Because when I was teaching at the Heschel School, I did some of that in my meditation minion, but I was also teaching like heady topics like Talmud and Bible, you know, and Jewish ethics and things like that, which were interesting and great. And the kids were engaged, you know, but just had this really deep intuition. So, you know, as with those kinds of things in our lives, it often takes, you know, months to years to actualize them, to find the right vessel, right, for being able to take that intention and that wisdom and make it manifest. Mm-hmm. You know, so my wife and I moved to Illinois to be close to her family. She grew up here. It was cheaper than New York City, is cheaper than New York City. And uh, we wanted to be able to raise kids uh, really in the lap of kind of nuclear family with grandparents and cousins. And I taught uh, Judaic studies at the Chicagoland Jewish High School, which is now the Rochelle Zell Jewish High School for a number of years. And I, little by little, brought more of the contemplative practice into other facets of my teaching, right? So I brought it into my Talmud instruction and into my Bible instruction and into my, you know, uh, instruction of, you know, Jewish philosophy or ethics or whatever the case may be. Can you for a second? How did you bring contemplative or mindfulness into Talmud? Give me a little quick example. Yeah, well, look, I mean, some of it was inspired by the secular mindfulness and education movement, right? Which really is trying to help kids cultivate uh, the kinds of habits of heart and mind that help them, A, to reduce stress and anxiety, mm-hmm. and B, to regulate their emotions, and C, to kind of cultivate greater empathy, you know, mm-hmm. um, and make responsible decisions. So some of it was just that, you know, because kids, as I was teaching throughout the years, literally year by year, it was becoming clear they were more dysregulated, they were more anxious, they were more stressed, they were more kind of fractured, right, pulled in a million different directions. You know, and that really corresponded really with the kind of enrichment of our space with technology and smartphones, right? Sure. And then some of the kind of most uh, comprehensive research on on uh, teen mental health in America really, I think, shows that the technology has really had a deleterious effect, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, wow, these kids just need, they need a place of refuge, right? They need to be able to show up in class and instead of jumping right into the next subject, and taxing them intellectually, mm-hmm. physically, you know, let's first get them into a place where they're calm and focused, right? Which is the optimal state for learning, mm-hmm. right? But then I also really wanted the Jewish learning to resonate with their lived experience and to help them to cultivate tools 
for being able to live uh, in, in a manner that would support them to meet the challenges of being a teenager in the 21st century from within right, a native Jewish language and spiritual orientation. So for example, when I taught sophomore Talmud, which focused on um, uh, tractate brachot, which is really all about blessings and prayer, we would study a piece of Talmud that had some bearing on the kinds of kavanah, right, intention, focus, that is really conducive to having a meaningful and transformative prayer experience. And then I would actually lead them in a practice, you know, to make it real mm-hmm. in a very kind of inquiry-based way. And I'd invite them to share with me what their experience was. And then I would send them into their daily prayer services with an assignment to actually try a practice out, you know, and come back and report in their journal kind of what they'd noticed, you know. So there was a kind of like practicum to it. It wasn't just all intellectual study. And, you know, combined with the mindfulness skills that they were learning at the beginning of class, when I would just give them like a cool down period, right, to go inside and regulate themselves, you know, and then the invitation to actually kind of transport those skills into native Jewish ritual and practice as mindfulness practice, right? Mm -hmm. The kids were able to really experience their Judaism in a way that, that helped them to manage some of their pain and difficulty and suffering, you know? I remember one time when I was leading the meditation minion there, I think the girl at the time was a 10th grader. And this particular person, you know, was being groomed to be a concert pianist. Mm. Very high stress life where she was expected to compete and perform at a very high level. In addition to really excelling at school, she was practicing something like six or seven hours a day, Mm. you know, to become a pianist. And she walks in one morning and she just plops herself down on the floor in the way that, you know, only teenagers can do. And she says, oh, I'm so grateful to be here. This is the only place in my life where I don't have to measure up to some standard oh. and just be, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to create that kind of an environment in the classroom and for the, the Jewish learning to somehow like have that flavor, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I was pretty successful at doing that. Luckily, by that time, the mindfulness and education movement had begun to burgeon really the first articles into the benefits of mindfulness-based interventions in schools came out in 2008 and 2009. And when I had started working at the Heschel School and I was leading the meditation minion, there was nothing like that, you know? But now there was at least a secular literature that was evolving and best practices and curricula, you know, that I could integrate into my Jewish teaching and, you know, kind of lean on a little bit, you know, as well as networks and so on and so forth, you know? So that was great. At some point, my close friend, Rabbi Jordan Ben-Dadapel, who was running at the time an organization called the Center for Jewish Mindfulness locally here in the Chicago area, he invited me to come on as his co-teacher. And after a number of years of knowing each other, he said, you know, you should really, you should really come and work at IJS because he was working part-time at IJS. And IJS, for people that don't know what that means. The Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Yeah. But as a kind of inroad to that idea, he invited me to participate in the Jewish Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program, which has now uh, been kind of reformulated as the program you're in, Yesod, you know, Foundations for Deepening Jewish Mindfulness Meditation. But so I participated in the second cohort of that program, and it was really rich. I deepened my practice, you know, a lot and took away some really valuable tools to refine and hone my teaching skills and so on and so forth, you know. And then at the very end of that um, uh, retreat, of, of, of the final of, I think, 
four retreats in that program over 16 months. We were invited to pair up by affinity groups. Uh, and I, I raised my hand. I said, I want to talk about mindfulness in Jewish education, you know. Mm-hmm. And some people gathered around. You know, I ended up um, really spearheading this conversation about how we might make uh, the whole Jewish education space kind of really more centered around, you know, spiritual growth and spiritual practice. So that was really interesting. And then little by little out of that, you know, the idea came to create a program for the Institute for Jewish Spirituality for Jewish day school educators and camp educators so that they could enrich their own spiritual lives and spiritual practices and then teach these practices to their students. And I wrote a proposal and I submitted it to the then director of IJS, Rabbi Lisa Goldstein. And she said, let's see if we can get some money for this. We got money. So I came on part-time at IJS, even as I was continuing to teach high school. Mm-hmm. And then um, in my synagogue here, one of my two prayer communities here, there were a number of educators, including myself, Rabbi Josh Fagelson, uh, Jane Shapiro, who's a wonderful local contemplative educator here, and Rebecca Minkus Lieber, Lieberman, also a wonderful contemplative educator, and Rabbi Jordan Bendadapel, my friend, also was part of this whole conversation. We got together and we decided, you know what, there's no hub in the Chicago area for contemplative Jewish learning and living. And so we founded Orot, you know, kind of around the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a time when I was teaching part-time at the high school teaching part-time at Orote and developing that organization with these people, and then teaching part-time at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, directing our Educating for a Jewish Spiritual Life program. And, uh, you know, since then, Orote has really kind of picked up and burgeoned and now has a national presence. They've expanded from just leading mindfulness sits and kind of local classes to running, you know, cohort-based programs um, at the national level. For example, they have a peaceful parent project it's really meant to help, you know, parents who are an array of mindfulness skills in a Jewish spiritual framework to develop kind of non-reactivity and responsiveness in their parenting. And uh, at Arota, I actually founded a program for social service providers called the Compassion Project that I believe also has gone, you know, national now. And that was really, you know, based on the, the recognition that folks who are in the social service sector, you know, have a huge degree of occupational burnout and stress. Oh, yeah. Um, and can really benefit from having kind of an inner resiliency toolkit, you know, um, that was Jewishly grounded. They could also potentially use in their therapeutic work. Um, yeah, so I'm really happy. I mean, Orot is really thriving, and I invite all of you to check out the Orot website. It's orotcenter.org. Sadly, I when I went on full time at, at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, I had to pull back from Orota, and I don't do much teaching there anymore, but it's a great, great hub for a contemplative Jewish living and learning. You know, I'm still friendly and close with all of the co-founders and really, you know, highly value and respect their work. Amazing. Yeah. For all parents listening, I know he said it fast, but I heard Peaceful Parent Project, teaching mindfulness around parenting and non-reactivity. And so definitely go check that out as I will be as well uh so something we can all get better at for sure all right ladies and gentlemen we are going to do something we've never done before this episode actually went on for another 45 minutes and rabbi sam and i went on to talk about the differences between meditation and mindfulness some blessing practices and some benefits of meditation that you can actually apply in your life right now we are going to go ahead and call this part one of a two-part interview series with Rabbi Sam Feinsmith, and I implore you to stick around. Next week, we will have part two. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. 
I'm your host, Saul K. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content, and we'll see you on the next episode.